Please open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, you'll find the notes in the bulletin this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text in the back of the notes. <clears throat> and this morning, we will continue to work our way through the ninth and 10th chapter of John's Gospel. Um, I'll remind you of, of where we're at. We're about two months from the crucifixion, about roughly um, two or three months. Jesus has stood up and taught in the temple during the Feast of Booths, in the middle of the feast, and on the great day, after a, a climactic conflict with the Jews who had believed in him, where they tried to stone him and kill him, he left the temple, and then in chapter 9, he's passing by. And he sees a man born blind. And the disciples and he get in the discussion about what the cause of the man's blindness was. The disciples assume this man did something, his parents did something. Jesus tells them, no, rather, this man was born blind for the purpose that the works of God might be done in him. And then we looked at the miracle itself. And as the, the text moves forward, what we get is Jesus works the miracle. He heals the man in rather unique fashion. Spits, makes mud from the spittle, puts the mud on the man's eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool. The man comes back seeing. And then we get four episodes of, of people interacting with him. Um, Jesus will eventually show back up in the, towards the end of chapter 9. And then he'll have a lot to say regarding this. But what we get now are these, these vignettes, these, these interactions between this man. We're going to look at three of them this morning. There's four in total. We looked at the first with the man's neighbors and friends amazed and questioning him. This morning, the three center around the Pharisees. And John is going to show us two things. He's going to show us the growing faith and spiritual sight of the man born blind. And simultaneously, the hardening unbelief of the Pharisees. This is a, a study in, in seeing spiritually and a study in going blind. It, it's going to set up what Jesus says at the end of this chapter. Look at verse 39. For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The giving of sight to those who are blind, the blinding of those who say they can see, is precisely what we see, pardon the pun, in our text this morning. So I'd like to begin by reading verses 13 to 34, look at these three episodes, and then we'll try to begin working our way through them. John 9, 13 to 34. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I watched and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things. <clears throat> because they feared the Jews. 
For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man... We do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Lord God, as we study these verses, we pray that you would give us faith, strengthen our faith like this man born blind, that we would more and more see Jesus rightly for who he is. Guard us from the error of the Jews and the Pharisees. Guard us from hard-hearted unbelief. Help us to settle this issue of who is Jesus, that we might have life. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus himself is not active in these verses, and yet he is the entire topic of discussion. The debate that they are having, who is Jesus, what to make of him, is the most important question you can consider personally yourself in this life. Who you think Jesus is, what you make of him, is the most important matter you can consider or work through. They truly here are discussing the world's most important question. And so it's instructive to see, on the one hand, the man born blind slowly put the pieces together. His his growing faith is gradual. And likewise, we see the Pharisees, the Jews, there's, there's some division. There's, they're, they're not all on the same page, but by the end of this passage, they are. And unanimously, they expel this man born blind. They harden into their unbelief. We, we see both of these, and it happens through three episodes. Let's look at the first. The Pharisees interrogate the man born blind. The Pharisees interrogate the man born blind, verses 13 to 37. John gives us some context. The first episode has already happened in verses 8 through 12, where his friends and neighbors are astounded. And he gives his first report of what happened. And and notice in verse 11, all he knows is the man called Jesus. That's where he begins his, his theological journey. The man born blind simply knows the man called Jesus. He didn't even see Jesus yet because he was sent to the pool not seeing. It wasn't until he washed the mud off his eyes that he saw. So he hasn't even laid eyes on Jesus yet. Presumably he had to be told who it was who had done this for him. His initial confession to his friends and neighbors, verse 11, simply the man called Jesus did this. 
Well, his friends and neighbors take him to the Pharisees, not presumably to get him in trouble, but because this is a very, very notable miracle. It is exceptional amongst miracles. As he's going to say later, there's no Old Testament precedent for this. And so an astonishing miracle has happened. In a book where Jesus works miracles, this is singled out as an astonishing one. And you see how it befuddles and confounds Jesus' adversaries. They, they have to make sense of it in a way that allows them to still condemn Jesus. So he's brought to the Jews. You see your blank here is the amazement. His neighbors brought him to the Pharisees. Their amazement. This is an unprecedented miracle. And we also get the setup for some controversy. Point two, controversy. Now it was the Sabbath. And that will be part of the reason why the Pharisees reject Jesus is that this happened on the Sabbath. Presumably, the argument is he's working. And some have suggested that by spitting and, and making mud, Jesus was kneading clay. It wouldn't be unlike the Pharisees to literally make that argument. Or that Jesus anointed his eyes. He did work there. Or surely just the work of doing a miracle is, is work, certainly. Um, so we get some of the context for how this is going to be problematic for them. The fact that it's a Sabbath is also part of what makes me think this is still the same day that we started back in chapter 8. If you turn back to, uh, no, actually chapter 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day. So the Feast of Booths, a week-long celebration, begins and ends with a Sabbath. And the final Sabbath is a solemn assembly as recounted in Numbers 29.35. On the eighth day you shall have a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. And so Jesus stood up and spoke. He gave the two great invitations. I am the light of the world, and whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That culminated in Jesus' declaration before Abraham was, I am, and the Jews trying to kill him. And nine just begins as he passed by. It could be some time later. But I think most naturally, he's leaving the temple. Our next time jump occurs, if you look at chapter 10, verse 22, at the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, what we know as Hanukkah. That's the next time jump. So these events, the healing of the man born blind, took place between him standing up and speaking in there. And I think most naturally, it's the same day. The fact that it's a Sabbath suggests that. We know that the, the great final day of the feast is a Sabbath, and here we know it's a Sabbath. So I think the most natural reading is simply this is still the same day. It's not critical, but that's, that's my understanding. I think the most natural reading and so you've got an amazed community with this unprecedented miracle. They bring him to the Pharisees, and we're told it's the Sabbath. That'll be part of the controversy, which leads to their question. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. Presumably, they'd, they'd asked the people already. They wanted to know what was going on. And for them, this is a problem. They're the religious gatekeepers. We've already seen them in chapter 1 send a delegation to question John the Baptist. When religious activity is taking place, when miracles are being worked, when prophets arise, they need to superintend it. They need to know what's going on. They need to authorize and approve it. And so they sent people to John the Baptist. Who, who are you? Who do you say you are? Why are you baptizing? They were confounded when they heard that Jesus was baptizing and growing in popularity even more than John. Nicodemus is sent by them to size Jesus up. In chapter 3, 
And now in Jerusalem, this notable miracle has happened, and we're going to see they, they don't know how to explain it, and it confounds them. It frustrates them. And they, they desperately want to, to find some way to interpret this that lets them keep their presuppositions and their power. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And the how is significant. We considered this last time. How, how did this happen? How did he do it? And I think what they're trying to find is some explanation that has Jesus working, that has Jesus law-breaking, some way that they can indict him or condemn him. Well, the man's answer is even more truncated than last time, but simple and to the point. He said, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Straightforward enough. The man is being faithful in his, his confessions of what God has done to him. So some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So they ask him the question. He gives the answer. The result is division. The Pharisees are divided amongst themselves. And there's two factions. There's the faction that starts with the assumption, Jesus can't be from God, for he breaks the Sabbath. Um, Jesus has already answered this. There's two ways Jesus answers this. If you turn back to chapter 5, the, the controversy of Jesus as Sabbath breaker has already arisen. And Jesus has two answers he can give along those lines. In chapter 5, where I think Jesus quite intentionally picks a fight with the Jews, he intentionally heals a man on the Sabbath, tells him to pick up his mat. Um, verse 16, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. That's a bold answer. My father works on the Sabbath, so, so do I. And they, they don't miss it. They get it. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So one answer Jesus has previously given is, I have the same rights, prerogatives, and privileges, and freedoms that God the Father has. God, my father, works in the Sabbath, so I do as well. But he has another answer he can give. Turn to chapter 7. Just trying to resolve this. John would have us not be in any doubt. Is, is Jesus... Sabbath breaker? Is Jesus perhaps being a little naughty here? No, not, not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. As the Son of God, he has the right to work on the Sabbath, but even the charge that he is working on the Sabbath is nonsense. Is nonsense. So chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Jesus gives an answer to the crowd. 721. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Here he's talking about healing the man by the pool. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work. You marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Jesus' argument there is subtle and clear. If you recognize within the law a hierarchy of laws, don't work on the Sabbath, but circumcise on the eighth day, what happens when the eighth day is a Sabbath? Well, circumcision takes precedent. So if you recognize that it is appropriate and right to circumcise on a Sabbath, how much more, Jesus says, can I heal a whole man's body on the Sabbath? 
So there is no problem. Jesus has not broken any Sabbath regulation. And John doesn't need to give us these arguments again. He's already given them to us. But as we're reading and as we see this, the reader is to understand, no, of course Jesus isn't a Sabbath breaker. That's silly. That's silly. But there's this division. The one side of the Pharisees, he can't be from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But the other side is astounded at this miracle. Can a sinner open the eyes of the blind? This is a truly unprecedented miracle. And it confounds them. So they pushed the question back to the man born blind. They said again to the man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And here's the question. And we're going to find out there's a lot of intimidation going on. We find out there's a lot of fear of man going on. This man's parents, they're going to, they're going to throw him under the bus. They're going to totally dodge the question. Notice the man's fearlessness. One of the things we get as we look at this man and we look at the Pharisees who are questioning him is he is sincere. He's doing the math. He appears to be completely uninfluenced, unafraid of these Jews. And it's possible at this point he's not aware of the mood and what he's up against, but surely by the end of the second encounter with him, he is. What does he say? He says he is a prophet. He is a prophet, which is... One of the main messianic titles in John's gospel up to this point, remember when he was talking to the woman at the well and he talks to her about her her husbands, the man she's living with. She says to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. After he feeds the 5,000, the people said, this is indeed the prophet that has come into the world. This man has at least put together the math. This man, Jesus, healed me. He is a prophet. That's his confession, which is development. It starts with verse 11, the man called Jesus. And now as the Pharisees press him, they actually press him into more faith. They force him to think about things and he starts putting it together. He's he's a prophet. Now they don't like that answer. They don't like that answer one bit. So that's that's the end of the first exchange. They they press him. They're, They're divided amongst themselves and this man thinking it through he, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Let's, let's move on to the second encounter. Verse 18. Now, presumably their rationale is that what they want to do is find some way to discredit the miracle itself. If they can only discredit the miracle, then this problem might go away. So they've decided, well, then surely this man can't be, have been born blind. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? They really don't like this. It is really inconvenient for them. This man who is born blind has been healed. Jesus picked someone who was known to be blind and he's worked an unprecedented miracle and it's a problem for them. And they're trying to control it. They're trying to handle it. The Jews did not believe the man had received his sight. Again, giving us indication of how unprecedented this miracle is. And his parents confirmed that he had been born blind. He had been born blind. So they pressed the parents. They don't like this. The parents answered, um, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So, his parents confirmed that he had been born blind. 
And so presumably Jesus has done a great kindness to them. You can only imagine of their joy, their relief. And yet, despite presumably their joy, their excitement, they are afraid of these Jews. The fear of man is, is strong. And so they, they say, we don't know how or who. Notice they weren't asked who. The, the Pharisees' question is the how. How is this done? How is this done? How is this done? But the parents indicate they understand the real issue. It's not just the how, but the who. And their response makes that clear. We know this is our son, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. No one asks them about who. No, but they know what the issue is, and they're trying to make it clear they don't want no trouble. They don't want no trouble. They do not know the how or the who of his healing. And the reason, they feared the Jews. They feared the Jews. And then we read, For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so what John is indicating to us is the corruption of these Pharisees. Again, we must not think the Pharisees make anything like an honest mistake. What we've learned now is they're trying to size up Jesus, but they're doing it having already excluded possible answers. As they're trying to make sense of who Jesus is, they've already know one thing. He's not the Christ. In fact, if anyone says he's the Christ, we're to give them the boot. That, that is not sincere investigation. And there's a great danger in trying to size up important questions and questions about God and questions about eternity and life and death and doing it with a bias, knowing what the answer to, to be, knowing what we want the answer to be. Part of what we see here of their corruption is they've already ruled certain things out of court. We saw them when Nicodemus, back in chapter um, 7, says to them, whoa, 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 aren't you jumping the gun a little bit? Does our law judge someone without giving a hearing? Their studious rabbinic response is, are you from Galilee also? We, these are not sincere men making a good faith effort to size up Jesus. These are corrupt men. These are corrupt men with corrupt reasoning who already know what they want the answer to be. They've just got these inconvenient facts. They've got to find some way to massage or work at. And so they, they, they deal roughly with the parents, and the parents are afraid. It's tragic. You'd imagine a parent, of all people, their loyalty would be with their child. But these Jews, these leaders exercise such authority and sway among the people that they're afraid. Being kicked out of the synagogue is being kicked out of the community life. And so as much as these parents um, presumably care for their son, that seems like a quite natural affection that God gives both believers and unbelievers alike, that parents generally are endeared, care for, tender-hearted towards their children. As much as that is normally the case, these parents are more afraid of these religious leaders. T take note of that because the discourse that Jesus will launch into on the other side of this is about him being the good shepherd and the Pharisees being wicked, hireling shepherds. Sheep should love their shepherds. Sheep should feel safe around their shepherds. These sheep are terrified of their shepherds. And these parents throw their son under the bus, distance themselves from him because they fear Israel's would-be shepherds. And Jesus will have some things to say 
about that. And presumably, not only have they decided this, but they've, they've let it be publicly known enough that the parents have picked up on it. So get this, the Pharisees have decided we are going to kick out of the community, kick out of the synagogue, anyone who confesses Jesus is Christ, and then they've let that be known enough such that the parents hear of it, and that informs their actions. The threat is an effective threat, and the parents don't want any trouble. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And so in the, in the narrative, this man is really isolated now. Jesus is not here with him. His parents have distanced himself. It's him against the Pharisees. What will he do? And what we see is his faith is fearless and bold. He, he's not able to put everything together because he lacks some information. But what we see is he is faithful and bold with what he does know. And it condemns and serves as a contrast to the Pharisees. Um, they would cast down any who confessed Jesus as Christ, which brings us to the climactic third encounter, verses 24 to 34. Let's read those again. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They answered him. He answered them. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They cast him, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. This is the climax of this um, interactions the pharisees cast out the man born blind so they begin by challenging him and make and make no mistake this is a challenge give glory to god is not an invitation to worship it's, it's an implied indictment this is the language josh if you remember back when israel um, conquered jericho and achan hid some of the spoils and consequently israel loses in the next battle with ai as Joshua is trying to figure out where sin is in the camp, it gets narrowed down to the tribe of Judah, gets narrowed down to a family, and finally it settles on Achan. And what Joshua says to Achan in Joshua seven nineteen, Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done and do not hide it from me. I take the Pharisee statement much more akin to something like that. They're, they're implying he's holding something back or he's, he's lied to them or at the very least he's not admitting to all that he knows. Give, give glory to God. Be honest. Tell us what really happened. We know that this man is a sinner. And what they want is, will this man, who's clearly going to get a lot of attention, you can imagine how many people will come up to verify, check in with them what happened. Will this man tote the party line? Will they agree, and will he confess with them Jesus is a sinner? And so they, they say to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Notice their contempt. They won't even give Jesus a name. This man. 
is a sinner. Admit to what you know to be true. Confess with us. That's what they're pressing him to do. And again, their pressure on him only makes his faith spring up more boldly. He is absolutely fearless. He, in contrast to his parents, this man is, is so admirable. Probably because of his joy in sight, knowing that God has done a work, he, he's not afraid of them. And he actually has a little bit of sarcasm and, and wit in what he has to say. Give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This, this is a wonderful model, by the way, for what to do when people ask you questions you don't have answers to. They bring up a theological question. Is or is not Jesus a sinner? This man knows virtually nothing about Jesus. He has yet to lay eyes on him. And, and people can ask you, they can ask me questions we don't have answers to. We don't know the answer to. D- don't let that frighten you. This man freely acknowledges it. He doesn't bluff, doesn't pretend to know things he does know. I, I don't know anything about whether or not he's a sinner. Let me tell you what I do know. And he testifies to what God has done for him. He testifies to what he does know, and he testifies to what God has done for him. Let me tell you one thing. This gets quoted by John Newton in Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. That's, that's where this comes from. Let me, let me tell you the one thing I do know, he's, in other words, saying, because it's kind of a big deal for me. I was blind, and now I see, and he's the one that opened my eyes. That's, that's what he says. That's what he says. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They answered him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And they're still looking for some detail they can use to condemn Jesus because they already know what they want the answer to be. They're not looking at this sincerely. They're not looking to this without bias. They are biased. This is not legitimate. He answered them, and he's now clearly picked up on this. They're going to keep asking him the same questions till he gives them answers they like. And so this man's pushing back on them. I have told you already, he said, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? He's absolutely fearless. He recognizes their partiality and their guile, and he points it out to them. And now the, sh- the charade is over. He's made it clear. He recognized, you guys aren't sincere. You're not asking honestly. I've already told you. You just don't like the answers. And then he, he chides them. Do you also want to become a disciple? Notice the also implies he's now identifying himself as Jesus' disciple. It starts, this man's progression of faith starts from the man called Jesus healed me. He is a prophet. Do you also want to become his disciple? And his response of faith unifies the Pharisees. Where there was a division earlier, now they're going to be, they're going to be um, unified. They reviled him, saying, "You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from." So they give him a rebuke. First, sorry, point D: his confession. Do you want to become his disciples? Now his rebuke, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And this brings up a a major theme in John's gospel. Jesus is introduced all the way back, go back to chapter 1 of John. Jesus is introduced as the prophet like Moses. That's the, probably the dominant messianic title in John's gospel to this point. And in the very 
prologue of John's gospel, John makes it clear. Moses brought a grace to God's people. Jesus brought a greater grace. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's language for what we call Christmas, the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God was at the Father's side. He has made him known. And the Pharisees are going to try to pit Jesus against Moses. That's their classic move. We're disciples of Moses. And what John's gospel makes clear is two things. One, there is no conflict between Jesus and his teaching and Moses. There is no conflict between Jesus and Moses. But more significantly, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the prophet like Moses who is greater than Moses. That's the very point this man's going to make. So the Pharisees, we don't know what to make of Jesus. He's a Sabbath breaker. And we're disciples of Moses. And, and on that, they rest their assurance. Now, Jesus has already answered this. In chapter 5, listen to this stinging rebuke Jesus gave to the Pharisees, 545 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus has already insisted these disciples of Moses don't truly believe Moses. Again, we're getting back to showing that they're not sincere. It's not a sincere, honest mistake. And we're seeing they've already decided what they want the answer to be. And as this man pushes back, they revile him. They pour on scorn. This is not a sincere um, investigation. They want him to toe the line. They want him to give the answers they want him to give. And when he doesn't comply, they get angry, which then sets up his faithful reasoning, his faithful reasoning. And what we get in verses 30 to 33 is faithful reasoning. Again, he's fearless. Look what he says. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So to simplify his reasoning, let's just look at it in three steps. First, he is astonished at their ignorance. These are, after all, the, the would-be shepherds of Israel the spiritual gatekeepers. Here is a man walking around who did a notable sign, who's been doing notable signs and miracles, and the Pharisees just accidentally let slip. They don't know where Jesus is from. In other words, they, they can't account for him. They can't explain him. Israel's would-be shepherds and gatekeepers don't know what to make of Jesus. That is an astounding thing. It's also astounding that given their ignorance, they have such strong opinions about Jesus. That's also what he's pointing out. If you don't know where he's from, how are you in a position to have a strong opinion? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from. He had to open my eyes. Then, point one, God does not listen to sinners. That's his first premise. Now, clearly sinner here is being used 
in a larger sense than simply one who has committed sins. We get from the here and other gospels, sinner seems to be some category for notorious sinner, unrepentant sinner, ungodly, consistent, habitual sinner, something like that. Um, we read in, in Luke about the sinners and the tax collectors. It, it looks as though sinner might be a title you'd give to a prostitute. So they're, not, they're saying something more than, is this man sinless or has he committed this sin? What he's saying here, God doesn't listen to sinners. God doesn't listen to the ungodly. And that's true. Let me, let me read to you Psalm 66, 18, where David says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Or Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Or 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise husbands live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs of grace of heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So his starting premise is true and orthodox. God doesn't regard the prayers of the ungodly. Not, not, not repentant sinners trusting in Christ, but someone who's given themselves over to, to, to lawlessness, someone who's embraced sin. God doesn't give them prayers regard. Yet, point two, Jesus has done a greater work than Moses. Jesus has done a greater work than Moses. This is partially what's so astounding. We know, he says, God doesn't listen to the sinners, and yet Jesus has done a work greater than anything recorded in the law of Moses. Never since the world began. That's quite a claim. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. So they don't know where Jesus is from. We do know God doesn't listen to sinners, yet Jesus has done a greater work than Moses. Therefore, he draws a conclusion. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Interestingly, this is something the Pharisees already have confessed. Turn, turn back to chapter 3, briefly. The man arrives at a conclusion a representative of the Pharisees has already confessed. (coughs) John 3. There was a man of the Pharisees in Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, notice the plural, we know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The man's conclusion in nine indicts them because they already know this. They have already admitted this. Nicodemus came offering this up. The miracles you do prove God is with you. And, and Jesus answers him in the plural. Nicodemus, make no mistake, is speaking for a group of people. We know because over in verse 11, Jesus picking up the plural we, possibly slightly teasing Nicodemus, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. But you, and my ESV helpfully has a footnote here, plural, you all, you all do not receive our testimony. If I have told you all earthly things and you all do not believe. So, so Jesus answers Nicodemus as one representing a group. Nicodemus shows up and says, we know something about you. And then Jesus later in the encounter answers him as that representative. So what this man says right here is precisely where the Pharisees started in chapter three. 
They know this. This isn't something that blindsides them. Oh, man, we should have thought of that. No, they've already thought of it. They don't like it. And this man is faithfully putting the math together. This man has worked an unprecedented miracle. God must be with him. Conclusion, if Jesus were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, that's not enough to bring him to salvation. Jesus will show up in the next few verses of chapter 9 and supply the last piece he needs. But what we see is this man's faith and his faithfulness is willing to be honest with the data he has, and he's able to fearlessly push off the Pharisees, resist their corrupt intimidation. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is from God, and he is Jesus' disciple. That's where this man's at. So how do, how do they respond? They do not like it. They answered him. And now they, were, they resort again back to ad hominem. He's made a theological argument. Do the teachers of Israel make an equal theological argument? No, similar to what they did to Nicodemus. Remember with Nicodemus? He comes to them and he says at the end of seven, guys, guys, does our law condemn a man without giving him a hearing? What's their response? Their mature rabbinic response? Are you from Galilee too? Very mature. Here, oh yeah, well you were born in utter sin. That's their conclusion. And they cast him out. This, this sets the framework for, the, for all that follows in 9 into 10. Let's just, let's just read a few verses further. Their fury, they condemned the man and cast him out. They show their true colors. These, these would-be shepherds, how do they deal with this brand new baby sheep, this poor begging man who's just been given his eyesight, whose parents distance themselves from him? He's standing alone before them. And all he's doing is being faithful in his reasoning. He's putting it together. What do they do with him? They revile him and they cast him out. Well, the good shepherd in verse 35, when Jesus heard they'd cast him out and found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The good shepherd finds this man, and he finishes birthing him. He finishes bringing him to full spiritual sight. He adds a piece of information he doesn't have. I am the Son of Man, and the man worships him. And then Jesus turns on the Pharisees, and I picture with anger at what these charlatans, these false shepherds have done. Jesus replied, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? That was a mistake. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, You would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And notice the red letters don't stop. This is a terrible, I think, chapter division. He moves right into his his castigation of the Pharisees. I want to close. Turn Turn back to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34 is going to serve as the backdrop to much of our study of what follows, but... I want you to see, I want to consider just for a moment the wickedness of the Pharisees and then one last consideration of the, the faith and the courage of the man born blind. But Jesus is the good shepherd and the good shepherd has the heart of God the Father. Here's God's heart against the would-be shepherds. Ezekiel 34. We'll just read the first five verses or so. 
The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strays you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, and they wandered over the mountains. Well, the good shepherd heard of the scattering of this sheep, and he found him. And we see that Israel's leaders have not made an honest mistake. They're corrupt, wicked, harsh, false shepherds. They're hirelings. They care not for the sheep. And they've just revealed that. Simultaneously, we see this man's fearlessness. Unlike even his parents who cringe at the Pharisees, this man clings to what he knows. He doesn't have an answer to all their questions, but he clings to what he knows. And what he knows of what God has done for him and what God has done for him through Jesus makes him bold and fearless. And if we can be faithful of what we know, God will give us what we need, just as Jesus finds this man and completes what he's lacking in his information. Now, this one man condemns all of the Pharisees. He does the spiritual math they should have been able to do. And what we're seeing is him come to spiritual sight, even as these shepherds become blind. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. We'll sing our closing song. Lord God, we rejoice that we once were blind, but now we see. And Lord, we give you the praise and the credit for that. We didn't cause ourselves to see. We didn't give ourselves sight, but you removed the veil. You spoke life and light into our hearts. You caused us to see the glory of the gospel of your Son. And in seeing it, we are made alive. Lord God, we give you the praise and the glory for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Fields as they lay keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Noel, 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 Lord is the King of Israel. They looked up and saw a star shining in the east beyond them far. And to the earth it gave great light, and so it continued both day and night. 
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.